I think many of us have had uh, the experience of watching a TV preacher. Uh, and what the pre TV preacher does, like a televangelist, is they say, hey, you know, give, me, give, give, give some more money. And if you give more money, God's going to double your gains and you're going to get even more money back. I always thought, man, if that is, if that is true, then why go to Vegas? You know, I mean, you might as well stay at home over the weekend and, and try your luck in the offering plate because, man, that's a pretty good, if you're going to double your money, which is what they say, then that's, those are pretty good odds. And the reason why I, I make this assumption is because there's, there's so many televangelists on, on the TV, and you might think it's a small thing or a small phenomenon, this idea of the prosperity gospel. If you give something, you get even more back, and if you act obedient, then you're going to get good stuff from God, you know, uh, treats and all sorts of things. But this is actually a huge movement in the United States. And just to give you an example, the largest megachurch in the U.S., teaches the prosperity gospel. Their average weekly attendance is 43,500 people. It's like looking at that number, I'm like, geez, there's, there are towns that are like smaller than, well, there's actually many towns that are smaller than that, right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good amount of people. And so 43,000, over 43,000 people go see this guy and his teaching. And this is, this, is what, this is what this TV preacher says. He says, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, and to fulfill the destiny that he has laid out for us. And this is, he also writes, we have to conceive it on the inside before we're ever going to receive it on the outside. If you don't think you can have something good, then you never will. It's funny because I've had many negative thoughts in my life. I'm like, oh, I, I remember right before I was marrying my wife, I thought she was too beautiful. I thought there's no way this girl's going to go through and, and marry me. And yet it happened. So I, you know, there's, there's many counterexamples to when you have negative thoughts and negative feelings and the opposite happens. And, and he says, the barriers in your mind, your own wrong thinking can keep you from God's best to experience God's immeasurable favor. You must rid yourself of small minded thinking and start experiencing God's blessing. Start anticipating a promotion and supernatural increase. It's all about money more and more money, health and wealth. You must conceive it in your heart before you receive it. I've received many things in my life that I've never even thought of. It happens all the time. That's human experience. But this is kind of the con job that they do here. In other words, you must make an increase in your own thinking and then God will bring those things to pass. So then if you are poor, according to this teacher, teaching, if you think about it, if you're a poor person or you're a sick person, then you are living in sin. You are living contrary to the will of God, as this is how another American televangelist put it. Poverty is from the devil and that God wants all Christians to be prosperous. So, you know, while this is wildly popular in America, it's not popular in China. Pop, you know, America, we have a lot of prosperity here. And so we have to ask this all important question. Is this biblical? What does a Bible teach about prosperity? What does a Bible teach about, you know, does, is there a connection between our obedience and what God does in our life, whether it be, you know, cars and, you know, uh, lavish lifestyles? Is there a connection between our obedience and what happens? I mean, I, I know many obedient poor Christians and I know many people that are wealthy beyond imagination that don't necessarily live a sanctified life. But besides that point, let's see what Paul says here in our verse by verse study of Romans 8, verses 17 to 18. He says, 
carrying off from the last time. If children, then heirs, and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So you can see from these verses this morning, the Bible does not promise health and wealth. It does promise us one thing, suffering and persecution. This is how the distinguished uh, New Testament scholar Douglas Moo puts it in his commentary on these passages in Romans. What Paul is doing is setting forth an unbreakable law of the kingdom according to which glory can only come by way of suffering. For the glory of the kingdom of God is attained only through participation in Christ. Belonging to Christ cannot but bring participation in the sufferings of Christ. That's what he says in his commentary of Romans. So Paul is teaching here that, that we experience suffering. And you might think, well, in order for me to reign with Christ and be an heir, do I have to suffer? Does that mean that I'm saved? Kind of like salvation by suffering. Do I have to suffer in order to be saved? Does that get me saved depending on how much I suffer? And that is not what Paul is teaching here. Paul teaches throughout Romans, we've seen it very clearly, that you're saved by grace and faith alone. By trusting in Jesus alone, we are saved and we have eternal life. What he is saying here, though, is once you receive that grace, once you receive that mercy of Christ, your life changes. And one of the ways it changes is God grows you and he does grow you through suffering. You do face trials and difficulties that does not make you saved. It's a result of already being saved. It's a sign uh, that God has already saved you. I remember when I first became Christian, uh, I had lived a, a pretty lavish lifestyle. I was raised wealthy and I had a lot of good things. But I remember when I became a Christian and started following Christ, my life uh, didn't get easier. In some ways, even though I had the joy of the Holy Spirit and I felt peace in my heart, in some ways my life got harder when I became a Christian in a, in a lot of significant ways, even though I had this deep joy in God and Christ. That happens. And Paul confirms this point in other parts of his writings. Philippians 1.29 is very clear. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So suffering does not make you saved. It's a sign that you were saved. Just like smoke doesn't make the fire, but it's a sign that there's a fire going on. And as they say, when there's smoke, there's fire. So it's a definitive sign that you are a Christian. And there's different types of suffering, right? We're aware of this dying to yourself, doing the right thing when it costs you a lot. That's a form of suffering. Someone hurting you and you're not hurting them back. It's very, you know, when someone does something mean, do you want to do it right back to them? Trials God puts us through as a form of, of suffering as well. And finally, of course, persecution is a form of suffering. And Paul includes all of this here in Romans 8. According to scholars, by the way, it's interesting. Scholars say that, it, that Paul uses suffering broadly to include all different types of suffering. But what I find interesting as I look through the New Testament is that there are types of suffering and a definitive type of suffering that tells you you're li living a sanctified Christian life is persecution. It says this in 2 Timothy 3.12. So it, if you live a godly life, you don't get riches, a bigger house, a Mercedes Benz, whatever it is. I always have that song. Oh, God, please give me a Mercedes. I always have that song in my head whenever I think of lavish lifestyles. I mean, I'm sure Teslas are way more expensive than Mercedes Benz now, nowadays, but um, so you got to change the song now. But, uh, but yeah, I always think of like a lavish lifestyle like that. But no, godly living does the opposite in this case. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
The question you have to ask yourself, what counts then? What is, what counts as persecution? And this, matter, this question matters, as you can just tell looking at the text, because I think we want to know if we're living a godly life. We want to know, hey, am I, am I following Jesus? You know, what's going on? And, uh, it, and things get difficult here because, yeah, what, what counts as persecution? How do I know that I'm following Christ the right way and all these kind of things? And I've heard many people say that, uh, and I've heard people say this like really like, you know, hyper intense decision making, like very definitive, definitively Christians in the United States are not being persecuted. Just flat out people have said that, you know, no one's coming after us with tomahawks and samurai swords burning our houses down. There are no, you know, there's no physical violence happening to Christians, people will say. So there are no, you know, we don't get persecution unlike China where they actually, they don't even like to have a church in certain parts of China. People have to have an underground church. So, you know, China faces persecution, U.S. no way. Well, that's a very narrow definition of persecution, and that's not the one that the New Testament shares. The New Testament has a broader definition of persecution, and I'm going to read this entire text. It's a big chunk of scripture, but I think it's good to get the context here so we know what we're talking about. And it's in Galatians 4, 22 through 31. It says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by the free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Remember, Abraham had Sarah and Hagar. They had two different kids. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of a desolate one will be more than the children who has a husband. Now you brothers are like Isaac. So we're like Isaac, the children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted. It says persecution here. So Ishmael persecuted Isaac. That's what it's saying here persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so also it is now and at the time the uh, religious leaders were persecuting galatia not necessarily for physical violence but by slandering them but what does the scripture say cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit it with the son of the free woman so brothers we are not children of the slave but children of the free the question is so how did ishmael persecute Isaac? Did he take out like a sword? Did he slap him in the face? Did he throw him down a ditch? What did he do? Well, this is how you know the persecution defined in the New Testament is broad here. Not narrow like it has to be physical violence, but it's broad because what Genesis 21, 8 through 10 tells us is the persecution that uh, Ishmael gave Isaac, that persecution was mockery and laughter. He didn't come up to him and push him down on the ground. He didn't do any physical violence or anything like that. What he did is he mocked Isaac. Look at Genesis 21, 8 through 10. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, Ishmael, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. That's when she says cast out the slave woman, right? He's laughing at Isaac. He's not burning down, you know, you know, burning down his toys or hurting him or doing, you know, he's laughing. And the Bible calls it in Galatians, calls that 
persecution. So the Bible gives not a narrow definition to only the striking or, or you know, causing someone to bleed, but a broad definition of persecution here. And so, yeah, I mean, so not all persecution is bad persecution. I mean, I think in the United States, we're fairly blessed. We don't receive the kind of intense persecution that China does. But if you ask the question, are we receiving persecution? I would say if you're a Christian, you will, degree, you will receive some degree of mockery, someone saying something snide to you. And so, yeah, you're sharing the gospel with somebody. You're telling somebody about Jesus. Not always going to get a good response. You're going to get sometimes a rough response, and that happens. And maybe the views you hold, uh, people will mock them and call them various names. And so, yeah, the, the, the fact people, people do hate people because they are a Christian. They don't like them. And so it could just be, yeah, it could just mean they just don't like you. And there's a really interesting example of this that R.C. Sproul uh, outlines uh, in his book, Holiness of God. He describes a situation where Billy Graham is, is playing with uh, the president in a golf pro. Um, and the golf pro gets mad. And he's, this is his account. He says, after the round of golf was finished, one of the pros came up to the golfer and asked, hey, what was it like playing with the president, Billy Graham? The pro unleashed a torrent of cursing and in disgust manner. He says, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing down religion in my, down my throat. With that, he turned his heel and stormed off, heading to practice the tee. His friend followed. His friend said nothing. He sat on the bench and watched. In a few minutes, the anger of the pro was spent. You know, you, you're mad. You hit, you hit enough. You know, the anger dissipates once you hit that ball a couple of times. If you can hit it, golf's hard. He settled down. His friend said quietly, was Billy a little rough on you out there? The pro heaved an embarrassment sign and said, no, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. So you see, that small, people just don't like it because they know what, what Billy Graham stood for. He didn't even say anything to him. And so people just know what you stand for oftentimes. That can cause persecution, them to lose a friendship. I remember when I became a Christian, I lost nearly all my wrestling friends from high school. They didn't talk to me. I didn't like, you know, start evangelizing to them, knocking on their doors or anything. They just knew I'd become a Christian and they just didn't want to hang out with me anymore. So, I mean, this can happen. And so the bottom line is, make no mistake about it, there is a cost to living the Christian life. And the same could be said in, about suffering in general, right? I mean, people think of suffering, living a life of suffering. Usually what you think of is like some monastic monk, you know, whipping himself, psh, psh, ah, you know. He's like eating bread you know, for every meal. You know, he's not watching movies. He's not seeking out entertainment. He is just, you know, I don't know, reading the Bible and reading Augustine and just chanting, like making Gregorian chants or something. You know, there's no, there's no video games. There's no entertainment. There's no, you know, feasting. It's sitting in a corner crying about my sin all day long. And so, you know, people have this idea that that must be like what the Christian life is, like this monastic, aesthetic, aesthetic life here. And uh, yeah, you don't have to... That's kind of like creating suffering. And there's enough suffering and pain in the world. You don't have to create it on your own. You can, you, it comes up all the time. You don't, you don't have to artificially create it if you're a Christian. But Christians can feast. Christian can, can, Christians can see art and see beautiful movies and see good forms of entertainment. This type of ascetic lifestyle that people think that to be a Christian you have to suffer, this is not biblical. In fact, the Bible teaches against this sort of like extreme lifestyle of like, you know, starving yourself, whipping yourself and sitting in the corner and crying. The Bible actually says that kind of lifestyle does nothing at all to prevent ungodliness. So we don't need to create suffering and you know, cut us, 
cut people off from marriage, food, and friendship, and good entertainment. No, that, and if you do that, it doesn't help your flesh at all. This is what Colossians 2.23 says. He says about like these severe practices. These have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. And this is the point. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Meaning they don't stop you. You think being a monk all day long would stop you from, from sinning. But according to Paul here, it doesn't. So suffering, what Paul is talking about here is broad forms of suffering that can happen for uh, following Christ. Not for us making bad or stupid decisions saying mean things to other people or being insensitive that's not what he's talking about it's it's when you're following christ and because you're following christ you experience suffering whether god's god putting you through a trial in your life or whether that's someone not liking or someone you know saying hey you know i don't i, I don't like this guy let's get him fired or saying hey it, will you do this morally questionable thing if you keep your job you know you'll get a promotion if you don't then we're going to fire you that's that's what it's like to follow christ is that you get persecution or suffering or whatever it is because you're a follower of christ not because you're you know you're a, you're a person making bad life choices right so, and another form of, uh, of, of Christian suffering is, of course, letting go of sinful patterns, denying yourself. So that, like, if you have a sin that you love and you're, and you're trying to avoid that and you want it so deeply and you're, you're trying to deny, say, a carnal desire or maybe it's just getting drunk or bitterness or lack of forgiveness and you're trying to deny those sinful inclinations, that is a form of suffering, that, that's not like, oh, yeah, you're not suffering. No, it's hard to deny yourself. It's difficult to deny something that maybe a sin you deeply uh, love and are identified with. It's hard to deny that. It's not easy for anybody. And Jesus says that when you do that, when you deny yourself, that is a form of suffering. Look at Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You think you can take up a cross without suffering? <laughs> I mean, a cross is a brutal Roman instrument of death. I'm pretty sure you're going to suffer on a cross. But he ties self-denial here to taking up a cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So you see this, this connection here between cross-carrying, which is undoubtedly suffering, and self-denial. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's clear here that there is this, there's this connection here between denying ourselves and suffering. It is, it, is, it is difficult to live in a culture that especially promotes, you know, be true to yourself, follow your feelings, follow your heart. And Jesus here is very countercultural, and it's hard to uh, fight against that, that, cultural sh that cultural kind of force that we face every day. But Jesus is here, yeah, we have to deny ourselves. And we do gain something from it. We gain closer relationship with Christ. He says, you, you lose your life, but you find something better. You find life. And of course, people who are into the prosperity gospel are going to interpret uh, life as money, 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 money. That's what it's all about. You know, success, health, and wealth. And what people in the prosperity gospel say, yeah, you deny yourself. You're, you're obedient to God. You listen to God's word. And you're going to have a bunch of health and wealth. You're going to have yourself maybe two big houses or whatever it is. And so, yeah, that's, that's how they view it as sort of like, if you're good, then you get stuff. 
This is what uh, one prosperity uh, teacher said. And this is so shameless. I, like, I heard him say this, and I couldn't believe it was happening. I was like, wow, that's, you're really being honest about what you believe there. He says, okay, I'm going to give you guys a chance to uh, increase your income tonight. We're going to have you guys tithe. I mean, like just, just, I mean, just being explicit about it, that if you tithe, it's going to necessarily have a connection with an increase of your income. And so this, this, this prosperity theology teaches this works-based, self-righteous system. If I'm good and righteous, then I will be healthy, wealthy, and have tons of money and everything. But if I am bad, if I am sinful, I'm going to be poor and diseased. This is how uh, one TV preacher put it. You have to obey God, and as you obey God, you will trigger that prosperity. God will give you prosperity. So make no mistake about this. This puts incredible guilt and shame on poor people and people who are sick. It puts heavy burdens saying, your suffering is all your fault. I mean, they think it kind of solves the problem. Evil, why would God allow this to happen kind of thing? But in fact, it puts guilt on people who are suffering. That every person who is poor or suffering, it's because they, they've done something sinful. They've done something wrong. And instead of caring for people that are suffering, who are poor and sick, you put guilt and shame on them for that. And it hurts people in the most profound way. And if you hold this theology, it is not only unbiblical and wrong on many, many levels, but it's also profoundly destructive to the body of Christ. I'll give you an example of this. There was an evangelical Christian church, and for some reason or another, the people in the church started believing in the prosperity gospel. Even though the pastor himself did not believe in the prosperity gospel, nor did his wife. And so what ended up happening is this, this, this poor pastor's wife, this poor wife, the pastor's wife, ended up getting cancer. And so everybody in the church was like accusing the wife, oh, you must have done, committed some secret sin. You must have done something shady. You know, you must have done something immoral. Maybe you're cheating on your husband. Maybe you're doing this. And so what ended up happening, yeah, is that the, the pastor just had to resign because everybody was ganging up on his wife saying that she had, and this is usually in a, in a denomination, in a church that's solid and biblical, but for some reason, people started holding on to the prosperity gospel. This poor church fell apart and the pastor had to resign. It was terrible. And so the people in the church sound just like Job's friends. Oh, Job? You must have committed some secret sin. You must have done something evil that we didn't see. And the whole point of the book of Job is that his friends were wrong. They weren't right. They were wrong for saying that. And so this has real-world implications. This, this is not just some abstract theological topic that ivory tower you know, theologians think about. This is something that, that, that people use to hurt and take advantage of other people. Very similar to a pyramid scheme. The people on the top get all the goods. And these TV preachers, they'll claim to be so godly anointed by God that many of them think that their attenders should give them massive amounts of, of money so they can buy and purchase multi-million dollar planes. I mean, it's just ridiculous. There was one being interviewed and said, do you, think, do, you, do you think Jesus would fly around in a plane if he were here today? And he says, I, he says, I really believe that if Jesus was walking on earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. He'd be riding a jet. You know, I mean, come on. Another said, if I really want to believe God to give me a $65 million plane, you cannot stop me. And he's like, and he got the plane fleecing these, these poor people and saying, yeah, you've got to give me all of this. And this is the absurd res result, is, is this people say, well, I'm so, I'm so amazing, I'm so godly, I'm so anointed that you should give me these ridiculous gifts. And it is absurd. It is absurd because 
Paul was murdered for his faith. Peter was crucified upside down. Stephen was stoned to death. The James was murdered for his faith. All the apostles, they didn't live long and prosperous lives. They suffered and died and bled for the gospel. It's unbelievable how this is distorted. And you think of godly people throughout history. You think of one of the most godliest men ever, the apostle Paul. Goodness. If anyone deserved a life of prosperity, we would say that guy did. Planning churches wrote a ton of the New Testament. This is his life in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 28. It says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a day and night. And as a drift at sea, on frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me and anxiety from all the churches. Paul is not living his best life now. Clearly. And nearly all the faithful biblical figures, including Jesus himself, did not, they were amazingly godly. Jesus was perfect, did not have a life of worldly success, riches, and health. Now, you need to know this is not only false teaching, but this is a false gospel. It is a false gospel because the place of, of Christ and his death on the cross is, is, is made into something ridiculous. Um, I heard one of them saying, you don't need, we, we don't need to hear about no blood and no cross. People don't care about that. People want to know how they can be having their best life. That's what people need to hear about. This is how one put it. Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. Jesus did not die so I can have a lot of money. Jesus died so I can have my sins forgiven and so that I can have eternal life, so that, so that I, I can be saved from death, hell, and sin. That's why Jesus died. But I want to be honest, I've been kind of hard in the prosperity of God. It's just a little, little rough. <laughs> it's a little heavy-handed, Pastor Nate. Well, it is a, it's, a, it's a terrible thing to believe. But I want to admit something, I want to confess something to you all this morning, is sometimes... I believe that prosperity gospel too, in small ways, not like I'm on, you know, hey, give me a million dollars. You're like, where is this sermon going? You know, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying in small ways we do, as Christians, fall into thinking this way as American Christians. I believe if I go to church, I pray, I help somebody out, I do my morning devotions, that I'm going to have a successful day. I think that. I, 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 sometimes in my mind, I just can't get it out. I, I think, okay, if I do certain things, certain religious rituals, I help certain people, I'm going to have a great day. If I read my Bible every day and help the poor, then maybe God's going to help and protect my children. If I, if I tithe, I'm going to be successful in life. If I help volunteer at a church, maybe my marriage will get a little bit better. See, I believe these things too because we struggle thinking this way in the United States because we live better than 90% than of the world, probably higher percentage if I'm being honest. And so the only solution for us not to think this way, to think in this, in this damaging way that messes up our relationship with God, like God becomes like a cosmic Coke machine. You put in the 50 cents and you get something out. Well, Cokes are a lot more expensive today. They're not 50 cents anymore, you know, inflation. Okay, whatever. You put in $2, $3, whatever it's going to be, right? You put it in your money, you know, you, you 
you, you get the desired result kind of thing. And we can't think that way. That's not the way grace works. That's not the way the relationship with God works. And so we have to remind ourselves of the gospel. And that's why I say over and over and over again, we don't, we don't move beyond the gospel. We move deeper and deeper into the gospel. We need to be reminded of it that um, I don't deserve anything. The only reason why I'm going to heaven, the only reason why God loves me is because I am saved by the blood and mercy of Jesus Christ. I've done nothing to deserve that. And the spiritual blessings that I ever receive from God is not based on my performance ultimately, but Jesus' performance for me. Jesus didn't die so I can get stuff. He died and saved me so I can have relationship with him, so we can have relationship with the Lord of the universe. And when we get that gospel message, we don't expect to live an easy life of success, but a tough life that is ultimately more fulfilling in some deeper way. You see, the real problem with the prosperity gospel is it promises things that ultimately will never fulfill us. The prize of the prosperity gospel is gifts and not the giver of gifts. And here's a really easy demonstration to show that we all know deep down inside that the prosperity gospel and riches, goods, whatever, houses, power, whatever it is, all of these things are ultimately shallow and will leave us unfulfilled. So imagine you have a, a woman who marries a guy only because he has tons and tons of money. Doesn't really love him at all. She marries him just because she loves money, big houses, big cars, fancy meals, nice clothes, all of those things. That's why she marries him. But imagine another woman who marries a guy because she loves him for him. She loves his personality, the compassion that he has, the compassion he has towards others. Now, I have a question to ask you. Which woman is truly having the better marriage? Who is having a happy marriage? The one who has found true love or the one who has a bunch of stuff? I think any person who understands what matters in life is going to say, the person who found true love, that person has a good marriage, a happy marriage. And the gospel is all about true love with the God, the infinite creator of the universe. Not just the stuff he gives you, but true knowing him, having a loving relationship with him. And that is the best type of prosperity, not physical prosperity, but spiritual prosperity. Knowing the one true God, as, our, as uh, the, the last verse in, that we're looking at, Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is the glory there that just can't be compared to anything in this life, the sufferings even? The glory is referring to the glory, the beauty, and the majesty of God himself. So what makes heaven so wonderful and the stuff in heaven is, is amazing, but what makes it truly amazing is that God is there. That's what makes heaven heaven is God. If God is not in heaven, it's not heaven. What makes it so wonderful is that he is infinitely beautiful and amazing. And all the gifts he gives us in this life, the finite gifts he gives us, can never really satisfy us fully. They, at the, if we depend on those ultimately, they leave us feeling hollow and empty. So we have true happiness in knowing him. Not the shallow happiness like the, like the wife who marries her husband just for money. That's, that's a shallow form of happiness. No, the deep happiness of the couple that doesn't maybe have a lot, but they love each other very much. That matters more than money, more than possessions, more than anything. And of course, that's the kind of happiness we have knowing the one true God. It's far more beautiful and amazing than any possession we can have. You cannot compare the amazing glory of God. You cannot compare it with anything in this life because everything in this life 
is finite. Everything, we're finite, we can comprehend a finite thing, and we'll get bored of it eventually. Like, I, you know, I, I get bored of, uh, of books and video games pretty fast. I, I mean, I need to move on to something else. Find, find a new thing to do. I, I get bored of things. Anything that's finite, I get bored, bored of. And that's just how it is. Any sport you play, people just get tired of it. I remember when I was in, 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 in um, high school, I was like the biggest weightlifter ever. I mean, I would weightlift all, I was a nut. Like try to max out all the time, bench press like a maniac, protein, protein, gym, gym, protein, protein. Like it was, it was my life. I worked out so much for five years that when I go to the gym, I almost feel nauseous when I see the weights. I'm like, I don't want to see those ever again because that's all I did and I hate tuna now too. Definitely bored of that. Okay, you know, so, I mean, we get bored of things, but see, the, the reason why heaven will never get bored in heaven is because the finite cannot comprehend the infinite, and heaven is heaven and will never get bored of the glory of Jesus Christ because he is infinite and beautiful and will never end. The love and the joy will never end because the love and the joy in God is infinite. That is why eternal life that we can have right now through faith in Jesus Christ that, that, is what, that is why it is described as eternal life in Scripture. John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life. Not stuff, not this, not that, not a car, you know, not like, you know, knowing all these. No, no, that's not what, they, what it is. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so having this perspective, the only thing that God promises us in this life, for, you know, for sure is that he will always be there with you and that he will always love you. That is the one thing for sure that God promises. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And so when things in life fail, when you lose things, lose people, people die, the one thing we can look for and depend on is the joy and the hope we have in God, the infinite source of love and beauty that will only truly satisfy our souls. That is the peace that we have when everything around us feels like it's breaking and falling apart. I really like the way that Toby Mack put it. He said this um, after he lost his son in a, in a drug overdose and he was trying to process the grief and the loss in light of God's truth. I love this quote because it shows how the prosperity gospel isn't something that, you know, suckers fall for, you know, like, oh, you know, those people over there, they're so gullible. It's something that, that people, we naturally fall into, and we have to remind ourselves of the true gospel of grace, especially, especially when tragedy hits us so deeply and so difficultly. I want to read the entire quote because it's so well put in how the true gospel helps us with grieving the deepest loss. He says, I met a guy in Austin, and again, he lost his son to a drug overdose. His son's name was Truett. I think he died about a year ago, sadly, two years ago. I'm not sure on the exact date. So I met a guy in Austin, Texas, and he lost his son. It was before I lost Truett. I actually was playing in Austin, and he was a guy I'd never met that said I could come play at his golf course with him. When I went and played with him, he told me he had lost his son. He told me a few things that were to help, helping prepare me, really. He told me that when you go through something hard and you have to grab on to something that you trust. And his thing was grab on to a promise of God. 
He said, you're going to want to grab onto a promise of God, but just make sure that when you grab onto something that God really promised us, he actually promised us this when we were in our darkest valley. Because we might grab onto something that God never promised us at all. He said, you might grab onto something like, I shouldn't be facing loss or God is good. And, he sh and this shouldn't be happening right now to me on earth. But he said, that's not a promise of God. God didn't promise us that we wouldn't face loss. God promised us that he would never leave us or forsake us. That is what he promised us. God doesn't always take away the cold, but he promises that he'll be right there with us. That's what I held on to. And I found him there or he found me there. I don't know if I'll ever laugh as deeply. I don't know if I'll ever smile as big. But I can smile. I don't know if I'll ever, until eternity. I spoke about eternity before, but I don't know if I've ever thought about it as deeply. Like deeply because I didn't need to. No, I always trusted God. I always walked with God. and There's no question about that. But it was like to think about it so deeply. But now I do because imagine the ones I love, the ones we lost here. And I always have the same kind of picture of him saying, his son, Dad, if you could only see what I see right now. It's not necessarily what heaven looks like, but the, how the whole thing works. Now, leaving this earth isn't, leaving this earth early isn't necessarily a ripoff. Like it's, no, you don't understand yet, Dad. You don't. You don't get it. You don't get it all. And that's what I see in here. I've experienced grief. I've experienced and I've walked through the raging storm, the deepest valley. And I just feel like I, I didn't know. But God stayed close in those times. I've learned that he does. I really have. And that's the one thing we can hold on to in difficult times when we face the deepest griefs is that God is always there. He never leaves us or forsakes us because he forsook Jesus on the cross. He will never, he will always hold on to us in the most difficult times. And that love is greater than anything, any physical prosperity that the God of the universe holds on to us and he loves us. As the hymn, a mighty fortress is our God says, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. So as we suffer the loss of many things, and we, we do at times, let us lose the grip on worldly things and hold tighter and tighter to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray.